Iran defied the Monroe Doctrine and sponsored murder in our own hemisphere, killing 86 people and wounding some 300 at a Jewish community center in Buenos Aires. And our government did worse than nothing. It opened negotiations with the murderers. Mullahs and imams incited violence and slaughter against Christians and Jews. And our government failed to acknowledge that anything important was occurring. September 11th is supposed to have changed all that. Since the attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon, terrorism has become the first priority of our government. Or so it is said. But is it true? The forces and the people who lulled the United States into complacency in the 1990s remain potent today, and in the wake of the victories in Afghanistan and Iraq, they are exerting themselves ever more boldly. With a few stalwart exceptions, such as Senator Joe Lieberman, the administration's Democratic opponents seem ready to give up the fight altogether. They want to give up on Iraq. They denounce the Patriot Act. They condemn President Bush's policies, in the words of Richard Gephardt, as a miserable failure. Some have even repudiated their support for the war in Iraq. But as to what to do instead, they say nothing, leaving the impression that they wish to do nothing. Nor is it only the president's political opponents who seem bereft of ideas. At the State Department, there is constant pressure to return to business as usual, beginning by placating offended allies and appeasing enemies. Retired generals, diplomats, and lawmakers huff and puff at the damage the war on terror is doing to America's relationship with their Saudi paymasters. Members of Congress complain about the cost of fighting terror. On television, Respected commentators intone about quagmires and overstretch. Leading journalists deplore Muslim and European anti-Americanism in a way that implies we are its cause. If you ask them, many of these respectable characters will insist that they remain keen to wage war on terrorism. But press them a little, and it quickly becomes clear that they define terror very narrowly. They are eager to arrest the misfits and thugs who plant bombs and carry guns. But as for the larger networks that recruit the misfits and thugs, as for the wealthy donors who pay the terrorists' bills, as for the governments that give terrorists aid and sanctuary, as for the larger culture of incitement and hatred that justifies and supports terror, all of that they wish to leave alone. As the inevitable disappointments and difficulties of war accumulate, as weariness with war's costs and rigors spreads, as memories of 9-11 fade, the advocates of a weaker line against terror have pressed their timid case. Like rust and mildew, they make the most progress when they receive the least attention, for their desired policy coincides with the natural predilections of government. President Bush's war on terror jerked our national security bureaucracy out of its comfortable routines. He demanded that the military fight new wars in new ways. He demanded that our intelligence services second-guess their familiar assumptions. He demanded that the State Department speak firmly and forcefully to those who claim to be our friends. He demanded that our public diplomacy make the case for America without apology. He demanded fresh thought and strong measures and clear language, none of which comes naturally to any part of the vast bureaucracy that Americans employ to protect the nation.
All of this departure from the ordinary has generated resentment and resistance. The resistors are supported by the heavy weight of inertia, by every governmental instinct toward regularity and predictability and caution, by the bureaucracy's profound aversion to innovation, controversy, and confrontation. And let us not forget that, for all the bravery of our soldiers, our military is a bureaucracy too. It didn't like being told that cavalry had to make way for the tank and the battleship for the aircraft carrier. It doesn't like it any better when contemporary modernizers tell it that artillery must give way to the smart missile or that conventional tactics must be reinvented for a new era. Really, it's no wonder that those few policymakers who have urged a strong policy against terror have been called a cabal. To the enormous majority in any government who wish to continue to do things as they have always been done, the tiny minority that dares propose anything new will always look like a presumptuous, unrealistic, intriguing faction. Taken all in all, it could well be said that we have reached the crisis point in the war on terror. The momentum of our victories has flagged. The way forward has become uncertain, and the challenges ahead of us more complex. The ranks of the faint hearts are growing, and their voices are echoing ever more loudly in our media and our politics. Yet tomorrow could be the day that an explosive packed with radioactive material detonates in Los Angeles, or that nerve gas is unleashed inside a tunnel under the Hudson River, or that a terrible new disease breaks out in the United Kingdom. If the people responsible for the 9-11 attack could have killed 30,000 Americans, or 300,000, or 3 million, they would have done so. The terrorists are cruel, but they're not aimless. Their actions have a purpose. They are trying to rally the Muslim world to jihad against the planet's only superpower and the principal and most visible obstacle to their ambitions. They commit terror to persuade their potential followers that their cause is not hopeless, that jihad can destroy American power. Random killings, shootings in shopping malls, bombs in trash cans, may be emotionally satisfying to the terrorists, but they are strategically useless. Two kids at Columbine did as much, and the Republic did not totter. Only truly spectacular acts of mass murder provide the propaganda the terrorists' cause requires. They will try again. They have to. Throughout the war, the advocates of a strong policy against terror have had one great advantage over those who prefer the weaker line. We have offered concrete recommendations equal to the seriousness of the threat, and the softliners have not because we have wanted to fight and they have not. For us, terrorism remains the great evil of our time, and the war against this evil, our generation's great cause. We do not believe that Americans are fighting this evil to minimize it or to manage it. We believe they are fighting to win, to end this evil before it kills again and on a genocidal scale. There is no middle way for Americans. It is victory or Holocaust. This is a manual for victory. Pessimism and defeatism have provided the soundtrack to the war on terrorism from the beginning, first in Afghanistan, then in Iraq. Remember the dreaded Afghan winter? Remember how the Iraq war was bogging down when Allied forces paused for two days to wait out a sandstorm? 
In Afghanistan, U.S. troops astonish the world with a whole new kind of war on land and in the air. In Iraq, U.S. forces overthrew Saddam Hussein's entire regime with half the troops and in half the time it took merely to shove Saddam out of Kuwait in 1991. It did not matter. The gloomsayers were unembarrassable. Having been proven wrong when they predicted the United States would sink into a forlorn quagmire in Iraq, they reappeared days later to insist that while military victory had been assured from the beginning, the United States was now losing the peace. There was looting throughout the country. The National Museum had been sacked. Hospitals had been stripped bare by thieves. Power was blacked out. And sewage was running into the Euphrates. Now the pessimists are quivering because the remnants of the Ba'ath Party have launched a guerrilla war against the Allied forces in Iraq. These guerrillas are former secret policemen and informers. The regime's specially recruited enforcers, murderers, torturers, and rapists. They are men with nowhere to go. If they are found, they will be tried for their crimes unless the families of their victims kill them first. The surviving leaders of the regime, hidden by one another, have money. It is not hard for them to recruit these desperate characters into paramilitary units and terrorist cells. What other future do they have? But it is wrong to describe these paid killers as a national resistance, as some even normally sensible people have sometimes done. The aftermath of war is always messy and often bloody. Post-Saddam Iraq has emerged from more than three decades of totalitarian rule and mass murder from more than a decade of economic sanctions and systematic corruption, and finally from a month of deadly, accurate bombing. Should anyone have been surprised that it took the United States a few weeks to get the lights working? Yet a good many people who ought to have known better did claim to be surprised, and they have claimed more than that. They have claimed that the Iraq campaign somehow detracted from the overall war against terror and that Saddam's success in concealing his weapons of mass destruction somehow proves that he should have been left in power to build even more weapons. These critics complained that President Bush weakened the case for war by offering too many different justifications for it. It never seemed to bother them that they had more than one reason for doing nothing, and that unlike the presidents, their reasons contradicted one another. Opponents of the Iraq War, like German Foreign Minister Joschka Fischer, protested that they were not convinced that Saddam possessed weapons of mass destruction. Others, like former National Security Advisor Brent Scowcroft, warned that if attacked, Saddam would retaliate with weapons of mass murder, unleashing an Armageddon in the Middle East. Opponents of the war insisted that Saddam had no connections with terrorism. And with Senator Edward M. Kennedy, they fretted that if the United States attempted to overthrow him, the United States could instead precipitate the very threat that we are intent on preventing, weapons of mass destruction in the hands of terrorists. Like General Barry McCaffrey, they predicted a military disaster in which the United States could potentially suffer, bluntly, a couple to three thousand casualties. And then they accused the United States of picking on a country too weak to pose a threat. They insisted that action against Iran and North Korea should take priority over the defeat of Saddam Hussein's regime. Now that Saddam's regime has been defeated, and the Bush administration stands ready to follow their advice about Iran and North Korea, 
their enthusiasm for action against those other rogue regimes has suddenly dwindled away. They swore that nobody deplored Saddam's crimes more than they. As House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi said in March 2003, those who suggest that there is any sympathy for Saddam Hussein in the world do a grave disservice to the debate. Yet as U.S. forces uncovered what may prove to be more than a hundred mass graves containing upwards of 300,000 victims, they showed virtually zero interest. They were shocked and offended whenever anyone questioned their patriotism or good faith. And since the war ended, they have followed the example of former Vice President Gore and accused President Bush and Prime Minister Tony Blair of bending our entire national security policy to fit their political designs. So, let's go back to the beginning, to where we were after 9-11, and to the reasons that guided President Bush to his decision to pursue the war on terror to the ancient battlefields of Mesopotamia. In 1991, President George H.W. Bush called on the people of Iraq to rise up against Saddam Hussein. In Shiite southern Iraq, the people did as the president asked, and they were mowed down in the thousands by the Republican Guard units we'd allowed to escape from Desert Storm and by the helicopter gunships General Norman Schwarzkopf had foolishly permitted Saddam to fly. The United States could have grounded those helicopters. We could have supplied weapons to the Iraqi people. We could have cut roads and communications between the rebellion in southern Iraq and Saddam's armed forces in the north. We could have warned that commanders who massacred civilians would be held accountable for their crimes. And we could have moved our forces forward a few miles deeper into Iraq to give that warning extra meaning. We did none of those things. The rebellion was crushed as we stood by. Nobody should have been surprised that when we returned to Iraq a dozen years later, many Shiites had not forgotten or forgiven. The first Bush administration had its reasons for holding back in 1991. When it had called for an uprising, it had something very different in mind. A coup in Baghdad by one of Saddam's Sunni henchmen. This was, and remained, the remedy for Saddam recommended by the Central Intelligence Agency. The CIA contended that the mass uprising in the South might bring to power Shiite extremists, who would then tilt towards Shiite Iran, and the CIA feared that a Shiite victory in Iraq might spread troublesome ideas among the oppressed Shiites of our client, Saudi Arabia. The CIA's hesitations were seconded by Secretary of State James Baker and National Security...